Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. From Live in the Balance, the nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about challenging kids and how we can help them. Well, hello there, and uh, welcome to today's post-Thanksgiving program. Uh, Delighted to have you with me today, as always, whether you're listening live or to the recorded version of the program. Always great to have you with me, and I hope you enjoyed, um, uh, especially if you're listening from the United States, your four days of respite, thanks to the Thanksgiving holiday. If you're listening um, from somewhere else, well, you did not necessarily have four days of respite, thanks to the Thanksgiving holiday, because um, you may not have celebrated it. Uh, But, um, well, now you're back. Whether you left or not, uh, you're back now. And um, still in the thick of trying to help the behaviorally challenging kids in your building so that they have a much better chance of a positive outcome than they would if we keep doing what we so often do. And um, today we're going to talk about a somewhat controversial topic. I get emails about this all the time, people asking me to clarify, and I get questions about this at talks that I do uh, frequently, but um, it's not a topic that I have ever talked about uh, in an explicit way um, during this program, Um, and that's um, the similarities and differences between collaborative problem solving and a very, very popular model of intervention in schools. PBIS. Um, those of you who work in uh, schools have heard of positive behavior supports, and um, sort of part of the vocabulary uh, in dealing with uh, challenging kids. And um, we're going to be talking about that today. Um, and uh, of course, as always, uh, you can call in and join in on the conversation. Uh, the call-in number is six four six seven two seven. Two six nine one, and uh, you know if you have something else on your mind, uh, w- well, we'll we'll deviate from the plan. Although it's an important topic because um, of the direction PBS often leads us to in school buildings, 
and um, the direction CPS, collaborative problem solving, would lead us to, which is often a very different direction. Um, and so uh, that's our topic for the day. Um, next week, just by way of reminder, we're going to be uh, doing our monthly educators panel. Uh, we will be joined next week by uh, four educators from far-flung places throughout, uh, well, North America, um, uh, New York, Maine, um, New Brunswick, and um, should be, uh, last time we did this, we had uh, two of our educators with us. Um, well, in this next one, uh, we're going to have uh, two more, and um, they aren't quiet. So uh probably not going to hear much from me next week, um, but you will hear from folks who've been living and breathing collaborative problem-solving in their buildings uh, uh, for quite some time and in their classrooms. Um, so that's always something to look forward to. Um, but, uh, you know, bottom line is irrespective of who's on the program these are always your 45 minutes that's why there's a lives in the balance and that's why i uh do this uh program every week these are your 45 minutes um if you need support in implementing collaborative problem solving in your building uh your program uh you need uh, help uh with a student who's uh, who you're trying to do collaborative problem solving with or trying to understand better this is your program. If you're having difficulty using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, uh, this is the place. If you're having difficulty organizing the effort in your building, this is the place. Um, this is uh, your place to call in, comment, ask questions, get the support you need, or just listen to what's going on with others who are using the collaborative problem-solving approach. Uh, once again, the call-in number, 646-727-2691. And as always, if you are not the calling-in type, uh, you can always send a question in electronically through the contact form on the Lives in the Balance website. And that's www.livesinthebalance.org. All right. You ready for this topic? Um, this is uh, always something that I get asked a fair amount about. What's the difference between collaborative problem solving and PBIS or PBS as it is sometimes known? Um, lots of schools are implementing PBIS, um, uh, which uh, does share some similarities with collaborative problem solving. Uh, perhaps the most important is that PBIS and CPS, collaborative problem solving, think that uh, behavioral challenges deserve the same uh, attention and compassion as other types of uh, things that we deal with in school buildings. Uh, behavioral challenges should be a top priority in our buildings. If it's not a top priority, why, my goodness, we're just going to keep losing kids and I mean left and right. What happens when we don't understand challenging kids very well and uh, don't intervene in ways that reflect what we now know about these kids and new ways of trying to help them that are a reflection of what we now know about them. But uh, the similarities kind of end there. One of the most important differences between the models, and those of you who've heard me speak before know about this difference, is the uh, difference between the, the two models, different definitions of the word or concept of function. Function. 
in, in many renditions of, well, bottom line is your definition of the word function has a great deal to do with the lenses through which you are viewing challenging behavior and the interventions that you are applying to try to help a kid with behavioral challenges. The traditional definition of function proposes that the kid's behavior, challenging behavior, is working for him. How is it working? It's working at helping him get something he wants, and the cliche there, of course, is attention, or it's helping him escape or avoid something, for example, homework, uh, or being in Mrs. Johnson's English class, or being in school altogether. That's the traditional definition of the word function, of the concept function. Basically, the behavior is working for the kid. And, of course, that often leads to comments like, um, well, if it wasn't working for him, he wouldn't be doing it. Well, now, according to collaborative problem solving, there's lots of reasons he could be doing it, and I'm talking about his challenging behavior here, besides the fact that uh, it's working for him. And, in fact, my opinion is that well, saying that it's working for him, that it's helping him get, escape, or avoid, is only at the surface level of what's really going on with the kid's challenging behavior. Because when we take a, a deeper view, take a longer view, we take a more sophisticated view, in my opinion, well, it becomes crystal clear that the behavior isn't working for the kid at all. Yes, it might be helping him get, escape, and avoid at some level, but not at the most important level. Doing well is the most important level, and of course collaborative problem solving is founded on the belief that kids do well if they can, that if a kid could do well, he would do well. And that if he's not doing well, it must be because something is getting in his way. What's getting in his way? Lagging skills. What could also be getting in his way? The way in which adults are going about trying to get their expectations met. Collaborative problem solving also operates on the belief that doing well is preferable. Doing well is preferable. Doing homework is preferable. Now, I understand lots of kids don't like it, and I understand that lots of kids have much better things to do with their time than homework, but the kids who can do homework do do homework. And the kids who have lagging skills that are interfering with their doing homework don't. But very important to establish the fact that doing well is preferable because that has tremendous implications for our beliefs about whether or not a behavior is working for a kid. See, if you think um, not doing homework is working for a kid, if you think getting out of Mrs. Johnson's English class is working for him, if you think that getting himself suspended so he doesn't have to be in school is working for him, then you've strayed 
from the belief that doing well is preferable. Doing homework is preferable. If you can do it, you do do it. Being in Mrs. Johnson's English class is preferable. If you can do it, you do do it. Being in school is preferable. If you can do it, you do do it. But if something's getting in the way, then your homework may remain incomplete. If something's getting in the way, well, look, here's what people will often say. They'll say to me, don't, look, he's, don't you think he's just trying to get himself thrown out of Mrs. Johnson's English class? Don't you think that's working for him? Only at the surface level. Only at the surface level. We have to ask ourselves, what is it about Mrs. Johnson's English class that is demanding skills of this student that he's having difficulty delivering on? What is it about Mrs. Johnson's English class that has led him to the belief? What is it about how poorly he's been doing in Mrs. Johnson's English class because he's lacking the skills to do well in Mrs. Johnson's English class that has led him to to the belief that the only course of action that could conceivably make sense to him is to get himself thrown out? If he could be doing well in Mrs. Johnson's English class like everybody else, he would be doing well in Mrs. Johnson's English class just like everybody else. Yep. Getting himself thrown out is working at one level. It is. Yeah, you know what? I'll agree. It's helping him escape or avoid, but only at the surface level. The level we need to get to is what demands are being placed upon him in Mrs. Johnson's English class that exceed the skills that he has to respond adaptively to those demands. Now, how well is it working? Not well at all wait a second you don't think he's just trying to get himself thrown out of school you don't think it's working for him maybe maybe but only at the surface level we got to get to a deeper level if we're going to help this kid if we're going to view him through the right lenses we are going to have to get to a deeper level what is it about being in this building that has gone poorly for this kid for so long that he's come to the belief that the only course of action that could conceivably make sense is to do things to get himself thrown out. Wouldn't he prefer to be in the building doing well like everybody else? And what lagging skills are making that so difficult for him? that he'd rather not be here. Getting himself thrown out of school is working only at a very surface level. We got to get to the we got to get to the meaningful level. We got to get to the meaningful level because otherwise we're we're going to have erroneous beliefs about this kid and those erroneous beliefs are going to make it extremely difficult for us to help You know, I hate to use a cliché, but challenging behavior 
I don't know if I want to use this. I guess now I have no choice. Challenging behavior is a cry for help. Oof, do I not like that term. But here's a different definition of function for you, flowing from that cliche that I don't like very much. What is the true function of challenging behavior? Not that it's working. Challenging behavior simply communicates to us that a kid doesn't have the skills to do it better because the founding principles of collaborative problem-solving are that if he could, he would because kids do well if they can and because doing well is preferable. Now, that is just a completely different set of lenses. That is a completely different definition of the word function. According to one definition of function, the behavior is working for the kid. Now, now that that's important for a few different reasons. First of all, I believe that that is extremely narrow. I believe that operates only at the surface level. And I also believe that if you believe that a kid's behavior, challenging behavior, is working for him, it's going to lead you to interventions aimed at proving to the kid that his challenging behavior is not going to work. That message usually delivered in the form of a punishment or trying to elicit or encourage what we adults call replacement behaviors that we adults believe will work better. That usually encouraged through use of reward. That first pass definition of function, it's working, leads us directly to what we usually do to kids with behavioral challenges in our schools. Um, if that was working really well, um, dropout rates wouldn't be what they are. Rates of suspension and detention and expulsion wouldn't be what they are. And we wouldn't be losing so many kids. Um, what type of direction is the second pass definition of function going to lead you to? The one proposed by collaborative problem solving, that the challenging behavior merely communicates to us that a kid doesn't have the skills to do it better because kids do well if they can and because doing well is preferable. It leads us to interventions aimed at, here we go, helping these kids solve the problems that are reliably and predictably setting in motion challenging episodes and at least indirectly teaching them the skills they're lacking. Two different definitions of function lead you in completely different opposite directions. And, of course, your definition of function also has to do with the lenses you're wearing and the interventions you are proposing in your functional behavior assessment. That uh, report and that process through which schools are practically mandated to determine the, well, the function of a kid's challenging behavior at school and the interventions that uh, would make sense. Um, 
my experience, and if you've heard me speak, you've heard me say this, my experience is that functional behavior assessments, at least the vast majority of the ones that I've read, all kind of say the same thing. Truth is, as I've always said, every functional assessment I've ever read, they all came to the same conclusion. Um, the kid's behavior was for the purpose of seeking attention and was being reinforced by the environment. They all said that. Now, um, no offense to those of you out there who do functional behavior assessments. I'm not saying you shouldn't do your functional assessment. You almost have to do your functional assessment. But I am proposing that you alter your definition of the F word in functional behavior assessment. Go with that second pass definition. He's not doing it for attention. It's not manipulative, attention-seeking, coercive, unmotivated, limit-testing. It's lagging skills. And if you want to incorporate an instrument that you'll find on the Lives in the Balance website in the paperwork section, the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, you want to incorporate that into the process of determining the function of a kid's challenging behavior. By golly, it'll practically write the functional assessment for you because it's going to help you figure out what skills a kid is lacking and what unsolved problems are reliably and predictably setting in motion his challenging episodes. So, by all means, write the FBA. Go through the process, but go through the process with the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems as your guide. And it's going to lead you to interventions aimed not at giving a kid the incentive to do well. I'm telling you flat out, he already has the incentive to do well. Kids do well if they can. And doing well is preferable. What you want to do is have your assessment propel the process into the inescapable conclusion that what this kid needs most from us is help solving problems and what this kid needs is at least indirectly for us to be teaching him the skills he's lacking. Now, PBIS is open to the possibility that a kid is lacking crucial cognitive skills. It's just that that's not... Well, the interventions that often flow from PBIS are more reward and punishment programs flowing from that first-pass definition of function, from the belief that the kid's challenging behavior is working for him, and flowing from functional behavior assessments that say that. I think I've mentioned this on this program before. I received an email um, quite some time ago from a uh, person in a school, maybe six to eight months ago, who was telling me that, um, well, she thanked me for, um, well, for calling to her attention that for the last five years she's been writing perfunctory functional behavior assessments. She said, thank you for reminding me that if I'm 
well for reminding me that there are there's paperwork in this building that I got to fill out, and there's paperwork that I got to do, processes I got to go through that will actually move things forward for a kid. I can't confuse the two. Yes, there's paperwork I just got to do. It accomplishes nothing. Maybe I can be perfunctory about that, but I should stop being perfunctory about my functional behavior assessments. Those actually have the potential to move the process forward so long as I am not doing them in a perfunctory way and so long as they all don't say the exact same thing. Thank you for pointing out to me that my FBAs over the last five years have been perfunctory and that everything I do in this building should be helping a kid. Um, there's the difference. A lot of schools that are implementing PBIS aren't doing anything a whole lot different than their old reward and punishment program. I think you move the process forward when you change your definition of function and when your interventions are placing a premium on the solving of problems collaboratively, not unilaterally, and the at least indirect teaching of lagging skills. Can collaborative problem solving be incorporated into a school that is implementing PBIS? Yeah, just, just know up front there are going to be some important differences between the two models and that while PBIS tends to focus on um, tiers, um, the whole building, kids who need some more, kids who are not being reached by the more that we are doing for them. I've said this on this program before, I'm not a triangle guy. I think collaborative problem solving cuts across all levels of the triangle cuts across the entire building. Uh, another major emphasis of PBIS is making sure that every kid in the building is crystal clear on what the expectations in the building are. I must say, uh, I don't have any problem with making sure every kid in the building knows what the expectations are. My experience is that the well-behaved kids in the building already know what the expectations are. And get this, so do the ones with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges. It's not that they don't know right from wrong. It's not that they don't know what the expectations are. It's that they're lacking the skills to perform what they know. Not the motivation that's going to take it in a completely different direction, but rather the skills. So I'm not thinking you only do collaborative problem solving at the second level of the triangle or the third. I think you start doing collaborative problem solving with your frequent flyers and then as soon as possible 
you start doing collaborative problem solving with any kid in the building who's got a problem that needs to be solved, any kid in your classroom who's got a problem that needs to be solved, and let's face it, now we're talking about everybody. The emphasis is not on making sure that the kids know what our expectations are. My assumption is that they know what our expectations are. Those who are having difficulty living up to our expectations, following our expectations, those are the ones who need our help solving whatever's getting in their way. I'm reading an email. Um, uh, an emailer is emailing here saying that a newspaper article that appeared in September about a study that looks at punishment and race in middle schools, the authors focused on suspensions, which often result from fighting, abusive language, and classroom disruptions because they were a measure that school administrators can apply through their discretion. Recent research showed that students' middle school experience was crucial for determining future academic success, right? I think I've said this before. I had a high school principal, uh, not a high school principal, a high school teacher say to me once, geez, Ross, it's not just the unsolved problems that have piled up over time in these kids. It's the kids who've piled up too. I don't care what school the kid is in. I don't care where in the triangle he is. I don't care what tier he's on. Collaborative problem solving is for everybody, but who would I start with? I'd start with the frequent flyers. And then I'd extend it to every kid in the classroom once we got the frequent flyers squared away. Because everybody in the classroom has something they ought to be working on, and everybody in the classroom have unsolved problems that need to be solved. There's the differences between collaborative problem solving and PBIS. I think you want to go with that second pass definition of function. It's not working. It's clearly not working. This kid challenging students want to do well every bit as much as the not-so-challenging kids do. Their challenging episodes are not working for them. They want to do well. Kids do well if they can. Doing well is preferable. The function of challenging behavior is that it communicates to us that the kid doesn't have the skills to do it better. If he could, he would. Now let's see what our interventions look like when we're when we've got that mentality, when we've got that definition of function. Uh, shall I turn to the email? Let's. Of course, I'm the one making the decisions here at the moment. I'm the decider. I can't believe those words just came out of my mouth. Uh, I'm director, this is me reading an email here, of a preschool with children ages three to five years old. 
We use a variety of pro-social problem-solving techniques for classroom management. Um, would you recommend collaborative problem-solving for LD, learning disabled, children only? What ages does it work best with? No, I wouldn't recommend collaborative problem-solving only for LD children. I'd recommend it for everybody. Once again, I'd start with the kids in the classroom uh, whose lagging skills and unsolved problems were interfering with the classroom process, were disrupting things, but I would as rapidly as possible extend it to the entire class. Truth is, I'd probably start the school year teaching kids how you intend to be solving problems this year and teaching them about how to solve problems collaboratively, what plan B looks like. I think that's what I do. And would I do this with a kid three to five years old? I sure would. As I've mentioned in other programs, I think the ingredients of collaborative problem solving start being applied the minute a kid is born, because the minute a kid is born, and I know this is a little repetitious from previous programs, but that's okay. I can't say this enough. The minute a kid is born, he or she is communicating, not in words as we adults prefer, but communicating nonetheless. Words will come later, we hope. No, they're communicating it with facial expression and by crying, mostly. That's by grunting. But they're communicating. And the job of the adult is to try to understand what the infant is communicating and to try to be responsive to it. That starts at minute number one. Those are the beginning ingredients of collaborative problem solving. Understanding what a kid is communicating, whether he has words or not. Well, now, geez, if we can do this with a kid who was just born, surely we can do this with a three- to five-year-old. Three- to five-year-olds are communicative as well, and often they have the words. Uh or at least the beginning of words. But we're trying to understand what's getting in the kid's way, what's going on in his head, what his concern or perspective is. Infants have concerns, and they're legitimate too. Hunger, heat, cold, wet diaper, indigestion, lights being too bright, sleeping, Noises, I wouldn't uh, describe the unsolved problems of three- to five-year-olds a whole lot differently than that. I wouldn't describe the unsolved problems of 23- to 25-year-olds all that much different. Infants have legitimate concerns. Three- to five-year-olds have legitimate concerns. Infants express those concerns in ways that adults need to try hard to understand. Three- to five-year-olds express those concerns in ways that are often easier to understand, even if they are not supremely linguistically fluent yet. 
can three to five year olds take another person's concerns into account? Yeah, if we work with them on it. Come to them naturally? Not necessarily. Does it come to many of them pretty naturally? I guess. Some more so than others. Can three to five year olds be helped to take another person's concerns into account? Yeah. Can three to five year olds be helped to uh, ponder solutions that would address the concerns of both parties and be mutually satisfactory to both? Absolutely. What? I wouldn't want to limit collaborative problem solving to any particular age group, and I wouldn't want to limit collaborative problem solving to any particular population, LD or otherwise, uh, verbal or otherwise, intelligent or otherwise, whatever that means. Poorly behaved or otherwise, whatever that means. One of our emailers is emailing, CPS provides a good foundation complete across the board with children so that they are skilled and equipped to go out into the real world. The early years are our window of opportunity to teach them these skills. Right. See, if you teach Plan A, imposition of adult will, unilateral problem solving when a kid is three to five years old, well, now, why would you do that? Well, maybe because you think that's the real world, except I don't think that's the real world. The real world requires that people know what their concerns are and express them the right way, take another person's concerns into account, and work towards solutions that are realistic and mutually satisfactory. Those are the ingredients of Plan B, not Plan A. Plan A is what accounts for trouble in this world. I mean, you need to know how to handle it when it happens. It's just that there's a whole bunch of skills that are far more important to life in the real world than the blind adherence to authority trained with Plan A. I think you want to be doing Plan B. But it all starts with wearing the right lenses, with understanding why a challenging kid is challenging with your understanding of the true function of a kid's challenging behavior. And there's the divide. Going back to our very beginning theme today, because it's going to point you in two completely different directions. If you believe that a kid's behavior is working for him to help him get, escape, or avoid, you are headed toward a reward and punishment program. My attitude, enough of that already. If you believe instead that the true function of a kid's challenging behavior is that it simply communicates to us that the kid doesn't have the skills to do it better, going to point you in such a different direction. That is a much more compassionate, much more accurate, and ultimately much more productive set of lenses. Definition of function. Set of interventions. Much more compassionate, much more accurate, 
much more productive. Um, our goal, of course, is to view kids with social and emotional and behavioral challenges through compassionate, accurate, productive lenses and to intervene in ways that actually help. It all starts with your definition of function and what you do next flows largely from there. Of course, that raises our final question for the day. Do I ever see need for a formal reward and punishment program? I don't. And it's not as some of you have heard me say before, because I'm allergic to reward and punishment programs that just don't make sense to me anymore, given what we now know about why challenging kids are challenging. Challenging kids are lacking crucial cognitive skills, and those lagging skills interfere in highly specific conditions that are called unsolved problems. The goal of intervention is to help them solve those problems so that they can learn to do it on their own and then they won't need you anymore and teach them the skills that they're lacking so they furthermore won't need you anymore. And that's not a reward and punishment program. That's not something a reward and punishment program will accomplish. Plus, if kids do all if they can, then he's motivated already. And he doesn't need more motivation. He needs adults in his life who are wearing the right lenses and have other tools in their toolbox besides rewarding and punishing. And by the way, there's lots of folks out there who say, I don't punish, I only reward. They are cut, as you've heard me say on this program before, from the exact same bolt of cloth, both types of interventions are aimed at giving kids the incentive to do what we want them to do. And if you want to set in motion a challenging episode and a challenging kid, well, punishing them will do that, but so will having the kid fail to receive an anticipated reward. Now that reality leaves a lot of folks who aren't familiar with collaborative problem solving yet feeling like they're out in the cold because, well, the preferred tool now doesn't make a whole lot of sense anymore. Good. That's the beginning of the journey. Um, the journey. The journey of learning about why challenging kids are challenging and putting some new tools in your toolbox. And as one of our emailers is reminding me, it's almost December. If you haven't filled out the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems in one of the for one of the challenging kids in your classroom or in your building, no time like the present you got at least another seven months left in this school year. Well, I guess at least six, depending on where you live. Plenty of time, as our emailer is telling us, to help the challenging ones, help the not-so-challenging ones, help the entire class. 
Don't wait till March. No time like the present. And I think that is going to do us for today. As always, I hope you have found this program to be useful. Next week, don't forget our educators panel. No question about it, the most fun program of the month, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but I uh, hope you found this program to be useful. And, um, well, you know where to find me if you have any questions about collaborative problem solving or anything else related to challenging kids and how we treat them. Uh, in the meantime, let's call it for today. Join in next week. Have a good week. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.